The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. And me, Richard Lee. This week, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet Tracy K. Smith joins us to look back on her pretty impressive career so far. I feel like the questions that I'm interested in as a writer are fairly simple. They have to do with what we as, you know, individuals in private circumstances, as well as broader public circumstances, what we mean to one another and what we do to one another. Smith is just finishing a two-year stint as America's Poet Laureate. It's all changed for poetry in the UK as well. Simon Armitage took over from Carol Ann Duffy as the Poet Laureate last month, as we reported, and Alice Oswald has now stepped into Armitage's shoes as Oxford Professor of Poetry. Richard, what do you think about this appointment? Oh, it's a, a cause for celebration, isn't it? She's the first female poet ever to take the position up. I mean, we had Ruth Padell elected back in 2009, but she had to resign within two weeks after it emerged that she had passed on claims that Derek Walcott had been accused of sexual harassment to the Evening Standard, the kind of email trail that, that was proved fatal to her. Uh, oh, Jeff- it's a bit unfair, that, I always think, because it was actually correct... <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely, but it's just the, the the implication that she had won it via skullduggery, I think, was just too much. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a spin thing, wasn't it? Anyway, so instead, Geoffrey Hill got it, but, you know, he was great as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not just that Alice Oswald is the first woman to serve in the post. She's also just a, a fantastic poet as well. Yeah, I went down to interview her a, a couple of years back um, at her house in the West Country, and it was totally fascinating, I have to say. It was all sort of tiny winding lanes dotted with roadkill. That's dead animals to people who don't speak. Um, <laughs> she does have the she does give the impression Somerset of being English. <laughs> she does give the impression of being a very kind of remote figure who doesn't. Well, uh, it's not. It was. It's sort of remote. She's remote in that she doesn't live in the capital, but she's not remote from life and death. So, so it. You know, she has this fascination with decomposing animals, which I suddenly understood when I saw those. I saw all the dead badgers on the road. Just all around her. Yeah, and who could forget the rotting swan or Orpheus's severed head floating down the river in her 2016 collection, Falling Awake. But she also has a writing shed with an otter skin slung across the beams, which was sent to her by Ted Hughes's widow, Carol. And although she doesn't like to be described as a nature poet, I do think she is heir of that tradition of nature writing, which is both it's both mythical and about nature. So it's not just about the things that are observed. It's about what they mean to us and a a heritage that goes right back into antiquity. So it's not to Hughes, Ted Hughes, but through Ted Hughes. So not just the dead animals, but a kind of epic dimension to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. She also has um, interesting plans for the role. She says she wants to open up the role to the city as well as just giving lectures to the students. And she wants to focus on spoken word poetry. Again, I didn't really associate her with spoken word poetry before. Yeah, she's got a, a really interesting history of this, that she wrote a poem called Tithonus, which was timed exactly to coincide with the, the minutes of dawn. Um, she was talking a while ago about, um, and I don't know whether she ever got around to doing it, about doing something which was timed to coincide with Dusk, which was working with a sound musician. So she works with sound engineers and with lighting people to animate her poetry in really quite visionary ways. Mm, She's promising a series of extreme poetry events with all-night readings of long poems, poetry in the dark or in coloured light, even maybe a carnival of translation or a memory palace or a poem circus modelled on 
John Cage's Music Circus or an exhibition of mobile poems involving school children. So, I mean, very much more than stepping outside in front of the lectern. Yes, it's kind of an echo of what Tracy K. Smith's been doing, isn't it, during her laureateship in the States? Yes, uh, for the last two years she's been travelling across the country and, and bringing poetry to rural communities who don't usually meet poetry very much in their day-to-day lives, which is, sounds like her, her replacement, Joy Harjo, who's going to be picking up from her this year, will, will continue down the same route. What do we know about Joy Harjo? Well, she's a member of the Muskogee Creek Nation. She was born in 1951 in Oklahoma, had a difficult early life, but has published poetry collections, including Conflict Resolution for Human Beings, A Map to the Next World, and The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, which draw very much on her kind of First Nation heritage. She says she hasn't yet decided on what she's going to have as a project for her two years as US Poet Laureate, but she said to The Guardian that she's been an unofficial poetry ambassador on the road for poetry for years, and hinted that she's going to try and remind people that poetry belongs to everyone, so very much along the lines of Tracy Smith's project as well. And also there's a little suggestion in that interview with the New York Times that she may follow Simon Armitage, who's got an idea that he's going to engage with the environment during his term as UK Poet Laureate, and she might follow the same sort of line, saying, just as when I started writing poetry, she said, we're at a very crucial time in American history and in planetary history. So she also said that poetry is a way to bridge, to make bridges from one country to another, one person to another, one time to another. Well, we'll be hearing from Tracy K. Smith about poetry as a way of building bridges after this. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Tracy K. Smith is a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet who has written four highly acclaimed collections besides being America's Poet Laureate for the past two years. Richard, tell us a bit more about her. Well, I mean, she's just a terrific poet. I mean, and such a lovely, calm presence as well in the studio. Her work has steadily pulled wider from this kind of intimate view of her first collection, The Body's Question, which she published back in 2003, to the interplanetary perspective of life on Mars in 2011. Her latest book, Eternity, brings together poems from The Body's Question all the way up to her most recent collection, Wade in the Water, from 2018. So when she came to London, I started by asking her what it was like for her to be looking back at poems she was writing 20 years ago. (laughs) It's always surprising in some ways to go back to poems I haven't, haven't visited for some time. It's really nice when I can discover things that I wasn't quite fully aware of when I was writing them. Surprises in the text. Yeah, it affirms that they have a an ongoing life of their (laughs) own. And, you know, we cross paths occasionally. But it's also been really, um, It's been meaningful to think about some of the themes and questions that have persisted in my work and uh, how they've shifted as well. I feel like the questions that I'm interested in as a writer are fairly simple. They have to do with what we as, you know, individuals in private circumstances as well as broader public circumstances what we mean to one another and what we do to one another. Um, A simple theme, but yet a very broad one. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Enough of a theme to explore for a whole lifetime. I think so, yeah. (laughs) The trick is finding the different contexts or lenses that it feels like I'm asking a different question. Are there particular things that surprised you looking back at your earlier work? 
Well, I can see very clearly how some of the poems I wrote in my first and second books when I was in a my first marriage were aware of the decline of that relationship even before I was. I, I read the other night a poem called El Mar, which I think is in Duende, but was written with many of the poems in my first book. And I can see so clearly how that poem, which I thought was a love poem about a marriage, was about kind of saying goodbye to something. Um, mm. I think it, it it's exciting to realize that the unconscious mind has its own agenda. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, it works silently alongside you. Other times it, it pulls you in its direction. Do your poems seem to be gradually responding more and more directly to the world around them? Do you think the world's changed or has the change come from you? Oh, I'm sure both. I know my, um, you know, the the more recent books, Wade in the Water and Life on Mars, are very consciously thinking about contemporary America. In Life on Mars, my strategy for doing that was to think of science fiction, kind of futuristic terms, which I understand is a way of contemplating the present, thinking, you know, if we extrapolate from here and the choices we are actively making now, where will we be in X number of years? So that was a, you know, uh, an exciting and sometimes playful way of asking difficult questions and acknowledging things that, that cause me unrest. It's also a, a massive shift in perspective from the very personal to the most broad perspective available, the cosmic perspective. Right. Initially, that was really in service of questions about America. I see that in poems like... The Universe is a House Party, which is a poem I think about an American sense of dominion, or really, I think, any any nation or any empire sense of, of ownership, even of the cosmos. But in the later work, it's been history that has been a useful lens. And I think one of the shocking you know, realizations I've had is that the history I always thought was dead and buried or so long ago resolved is really present. It's no more certain of, you know, itself uh, than than it ever was. And the threats that it poses are threats that we are really feeling the effects of. This history feels very, very current. So perhaps we might hear a little bit of the work now, but perhaps we could hear a declaration now. Sure, yeah. So this poem is an erasure of the Declaration of Independence, and I was thinking, you know, what can I hear in this this document that we all know, we all learned in, in, at one point, but what can I hear that might speak to the anxieties of 21st century America? Now, just for anybody who's not familiar with the term, what does an erasure mean? Oh, so it's kind of like a redaction. There's a text that is often a shared public text, and by deleting certain portions of it, one comes to hear a different kind of message. Uh, in this case, I felt a, a, a really clear statement of the nature of black life in America. Declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our, ravaged our destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. 
our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. Thank you. So where does the idea come from that there might be a poem like that buried in the Declaration of Independence? Well, I um, kind of found my way to archival materials sort of by chance. Um, I was invited a number of years ago to write a poem about the Civil War. And so I was eager to find out what black experiences of the Civil War had been. And I found a number of letters and deposition statements that gave me a really vivid picture of that. And so then I began to think, what else might be useful? Those voices from those letters and statements felt like they were so present and so powerfully persuasive. And their, their argument that black soldiers deserved justice, deserved compensation, and that black veterans deserved pensions was perfectly, you know, transparently clear. But history didn't really, you know, bend to that logic. And I wanted to find out what else, you know, was what might be capable of speaking in a new way or a necessary way to today. And so that's how the Declaration of Independence got on my radar as a poet. And, you know, it reminded me that the very same complaints that the American colonists had against King George speak to current and ongoing conditions of Americans here against the nation itself. Because those letters that you found, the letters from black people who had served in the Civil War and indeed their families, these letters you turned into an entire poem I mean, without any intervention from your, from your own words at all. Right. Was that because you wanted to let the, the words of these people speak for themselves? Oh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, my intention had been to gobble up all this information and then compose a poem in my own voice. But reading the letters and statements, I realized there was nothing I could add to that. There was a really powerful kind of poetry in those voices and that we would all be wise to just kind of sit down and listen to them. Do you think that readers are in some way suspicious of this kind of found poetry as if it's not really you? I don't know. I know that there can be a frivolous use of found material because you're making choices about what to keep and what to excise. But I've shared that particular poem quite a lot and It's one of the only poems that seems to have a consistent reaction, regardless of where I am. And, you know, over the last few years, I've spent a lot of time in rural America and in the South, where the perspective on the Civil War is not always consistent with what, you know, I think in, you know, the East Coast. And yet, these voices do have a kind of compelling effect upon upon listeners. I think maybe we should hear a bit of that now. Do you want to just read us a little bit from the opening section? Sure. So this poem is called, I Will Tell You the Truth About This. I will tell you all about it. And most of it is discrete letters that I've made an attempt really not to tamper with. The spellings are the same, and and they haven't really been compressed. There are a couple of sections that are more like choruses of many different voices, but this is one letter. Carlisle, Pennsylvania, November 21st, 1864. Mr. Abraham Lincoln. I want to know, sir, if you please, whether I can have my son released from the army. He is all the support I have now. His father is dead, 
and his brother, that was all the help I had. He has been wounded twice. He has not had nothing to send me yet. Now I am old, and my head is blossoming for the grave. And if you do, I hope the Lord will bless you and me. They say that you will sympathize with the poor. He belong to the 8 Regiment Colored Troops. He is a sergeant. Mart Welcome is his name. It's a technique you've been using uh, for, for a little while, though, isn't it? I mean, Into the Moonless Night from Duende is yeah. taken from the pages of the news with some dialogue in, this, in these voices. Yeah, uh, I think it, it's really compelling to me to feel that I can get on the ground at the level at which history is happening and to think within the vocabulary of individual experience and individual lives as opposed to policy and demographics, which you know we tend to do, and that helps us justify certain things. But if you hear someone you know, talking about what she has lost and what she needs and the simple terms that that, that is, is delineated by, it, it reaches you in a different way. Another of the themes that runs all the way through the collection is loss and time. Maybe we could hear a little bit from the for the final section of your poem, Joy. Sure. Yeah, Joy is an elegy for my mother. I spent a lot of time when I was in grad school writing poems that were hoping to resolve the fact of her death, which is, I think, an impossibility. And this was one of the first poems that I wrote that felt like I'd found a satisfying way of touching base with the past and acknowledging, um, acknowledging loss. These logs, hacked so sloppily, their blonde grains resemble overdone poultry, are too thick to catch. I crumple paper to encourage the flame, and for a brief moment, everything is lit. But the logs haven't caught just seem to smolder and shrink as the heat works its way to their center. Getting to what I want will be slow going and mostly smoke. Years ago, during a storm, I knelt before the open side of a blue and white miniature house, moving the dolls from room to room while you added kindling to the fire. It is true that death resists the present tense. But memory does death one better, ignores the future. We sat in that room until the wood was spent. We never left the room. The wood was never spent. We never left the room, as you say. There's this similar moment in My God, It's Full of Stars when you imagine time curling in on itself and looping around like smoke so that I might be sitting now beside my father as he raises a lit match to the bowl of his pipe for the first time in the winter of 1959. Do you think poetry has a different kind of relationship to time than prose, which is so bound up with narrative or some kind of argument. Oh, I think so. I mean, prose does wonderful things with time as well. But I think you're right. Uh, poetry is less obedient to linear time. Poetry, like film, takes leaps backward and forward and manages to 
create what feels like a tremendous expansion of a single moment or a compression of many, many years. And I think that happens because a poem's wish is to kind of outsmart endings. And, you know, death is one of my, you know, preoccupations having lost both of my parents. But I think, you know, the death of a moment is something that a poem is also fighting against. I find that the lyric poem in particular is wonderful at going back to a moment where something was felt or realized and allowing that moment to to linger, to expand, and allowing the, the poet or the speaker of the poem to mine that moment really thoroughly, which doesn't happen in, in life, which doesn't happen in real time. And is that because the words are so carefully constructed that they're in some sense defend themselves against the passage of time? I think that's part of it. But I also think that poems obey a logic that pulls us outside of time. Poems are deeply connected to the unconscious. And even if a poem is linear and narrative, there's a layer of the poem that is going to think associatively and that's going to think in terms of some other kind of purpose. And in a really wonderful and mysterious way, I think that lifts us out of the forward march that we live in. Speaking of time, you've, you've just finished your two years as America's right. Poet Laureate. Um, we're just in the UK. We have Simon Armitage. He's just beginning right. a 10-year stretch. Do you have any advice for him? Oh, he's going to be great. I, <laughs> I love Simon and I love his work and his mission of you know taking poetry into the world is wonderful. 10 years is a long time. I, I had a really full two years and I'm excited to kind of stop now and reflect upon it in a way that I haven't been able to do. So I hope that he will find different moments or ways of stopping time for himself. Because you've been taking poetry out into into rural communities, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, my, my goal was to kind of cross a lot of the divides that America is convinced it is characterized by. And to go from, you know, my life in the coastal cities and university towns and settings into rural America where there isn't always a lot of literary programming. What I found was that people have relationships with language and with literature and sometimes even with poetry, and that it was really exciting to talk about what people heard in poems that I've lived with and loved by other poets for a long time, to hear people draw a poem that might be about immigration or about love or loss into the particulars of the life that they're living and find relevance. Uh, I think it's an instinct that we have as humans, but we don't always turn to poetry to do that. And do you think that poetry has been an effective tool for bridging these divides? It's been remarkable. I know I've been in places where, you know, my values are different from what many people in those rooms might believe. And yet to say, here's a poem by a poet. It's about a mother and son relationship. What do you hear in it? What does it speak to for you? And what does it remind you of? And suddenly I find that I'm talking about life and family and struggle and hope and work and all of these questions with total strangers but feeling completely at home and the other thing that I was really thrilled to see affirmed was that we can talk to one another in quiet tones we can listen deeply we can ask questions we can challenge one another but without resorting to the kind of grandstanding without resorting to the kind of adrenalized debate that I think social media makes us 
feel is the dominant tone. The the collection ends with a, a vision of hope, an old story, our singing bringing on a different kind of weather. Do you really feel that hope now, or is it more a kind of effort of will? Well, that poem was an effort of will. I wrote that poem before the laureateship was even uh, something I, I knew about. And then going out into these spaces and feeling a kind of hope that I hadn't already been made to feel was affirming. You know, I, I think we can do it. I think if we choose to face each other directly and with a sense of our own vulnerability, I think we can, we can do something useful out of this awful moment. Maybe we should hear a bit of that hope now. Sure. An old story. We were made to understand it would be terrible. Every small want, every niggling urge, every hate swollen to a kind of epic wind. Livid the land and ravaged like a rageful dream. The worst in us having taken over and broken the rest utterly down. A long age passed. When at last we knew how little would survive us, how little we had mended or built that was not now lost, something large and old awoke. And then our singing brought on a different manner of weather. Then animals long believed gone crept down from trees. We took new stock of one another. We wept to be reminded of such color. A different manner of weather indeed. Richard, I wish. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I also I'd like the idea of hope as something that can be chosen. It's an attitude you can work on, even if everything around you is very awkward and difficult. Well, our thanks to Tracy K. Smith. It'll be exciting to see what she does now that she'll no longer be Poet Laureate. Her latest collection, Eternity, is out with Penguin. Next week, we'll be joined by Johnny Pitts, author of a new book, Afropean and dub poet Roger Robinson to discuss the importance of connecting generations of ordinary black people's experiences across Europe. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And of course, please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. From me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening. podcasts from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.